0: Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to
1: businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show.
0: Hey, everybody. This is episode number 92, and welcome to Business of Design. If you are an interior design professional of any sort, a landscaper, an architect, a professional organizer, then you're in the right place, and there is absolutely no reason for you to do this alone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kimberly Selden, and I'm an interior design professional just like you. I've been working in the industry full-time for 25 years, so I absolutely understand the daily frustrations that are an inevitable um, and hard part and sometimes thankless part of the work that we all do. I've been really fortunate because I've had this full-time interior design business, but I've also had a successful career in television. I've hosted three of my own TV series, including HGTV's Design for Living, and currently I'm on a show called City Line, where I get to show up at a studio and talk about design and decorating. I get my hair done and my makeup done, and that's super fun and way easier than the work I do full-time as an interior design professional. I know how much you want to make your clients happy and how you're willing to sacrifice time and energy and even your own health, for goodness sakes, to do that. I know how you start every project so optimistic. This is going to be amazing. And it's somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm hoping this is going to be worthy of publication or worthy of praise. And I know it's possible to do this hard, complicated work and not make any money. That was my story once. The work we do is complicated and complex, and yet we have all this public media out there, design magazines, TV shows, Pinterest boards, that show beautiful rooms as if they just magically happen. Show me the behind the scenes, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the managing trades, the light fixture that doesn't arrive on time, the marble that shows up but has a crack in it. Show me that stuff. That's what I want to see. That's what I relate to. Business of Design is my journey to not only improve my business, which I did dramatically, um, and I will say that I'm very excited that this year was my second best year ever in terms of profitability. And that's significant because I did the least number of projects I've ever done. So at one point, my goal was just to do as many projects as possible. Uh, and then I realized, like, wow, you know, there's, I'm actually going to drop dead <laughs> Like, that's what's going to happen. That's how this goes. Um, so maybe we can figure out how to do fewer projects, but do them exceptionally well and make them profitable. The reality is we cannot continue to do our best work if we don't have a career that sustains us emotionally, spiritually, and financially. So on each and every episode, I will be sharing collective wisdom inside and outside our community. In this episode, I'm going to share 10 best business practices. And I have to laugh at the first one because it's ginormous systems. That is really it in a nutshell. We don't have to talk about anything else because every good business practice has a system that's behind it. If you have not yet embraced the idea of systems because you're unique, because your clients are unique, because every job is different, because every budget is different, because every style is different, please try to get past that. Having systems in place didn't limit my creativity. It expanded my creativity. It gave me time for creativity. I was able to stop being stuck in the muck I didn't want to do and get those tasks over quickly and in some cases hire someone else to do those tasks and then go on and do my best creative work. As you're listening to these 10 best business practices, do not beat yourself up if you're not doing all 10 do not. Select something that you want to improve, just one thing, and let's work on that together. That's what Business of Design is really here for, to motivate you and to give you the tools you need and in many, many cases, give you the actual system you need to put an end to some of the crazy making that happens on a typical job site. If you are ready to implement some of these practices, then sign up today for Business of Design membership. What better gift could you give yourself? Recently, Team BOD met at my country house, and we did a walkthrough of the site. And I have to say, I was just humbled and moved to see that we have grown from 12 courses, which is where we started, to now hundreds of courses. In fact, we have so many courses, we think the site is getting a little bit overwhelming. So we're going to sunset some of those courses and, of course, add new courses that members are requesting. Please use Business of Design, take our strategies, take our procedures, take our systems, they're there for you, and also use me as your business coach. Fees are increasing, and still, cost for membership is exceedingly affordable. What we're really selling at Business of Design is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, but we are offering it during the next forty five days for sixty seven fifty a month. Come February, our rates are going up to seventy nine dollars a month. And if I'm making so much money as an interior design professional, where is that money going? Well, let me tell you. We have a number of full-time and part-time staff. Cheryl Horn is most familiar to you. uh, But we have other people behind the scenes at Business of Design. We have web and hosting fees, which are sizable because we have more than 1,000 videos on the site and members in 50 countries, which means we have to have hosts and servers in a variety of locations. I am also insanely protective of the content and your security. So, we pay for the best security measures. In addition, membership pays for this podcast. We rarely have a sponsor because we're very careful about endorsing anyone. Membership also pays uh, for me to attend Business of Design group meetings and events and to provide curriculum to Business of Design meetings, which are popping up in the new year. Very exciting. I do not believe there is any other industry insider whose motives are as pure as our motives. We want you to succeed, we want your peers to succeed, and we want the industry to succeed. As promised, I'm going to talk about some of the best business strategies you can introduce into your business in 2019. Let's get started.
1: Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Seldon. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, plus Kimberly Seldon as your mentor and guide. Unlike traditional coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too
0: the top of the list, the very first thing I'm going to talk about has to do with systems. I didn't even like the idea of systems when I hired my first business coach. I kept trying to educate her about the fact that every job was unique. The budget was unique, the client was unique, the style was unique. And because of that, I explained to her patiently time and time again, it was impossible to create systems. I wasn't selling a hamburger. I wasn't selling a cappuccino from Starbucks. I was selling something unique. Well, She insisted right back to me that I would never create the business of my dreams if I didn't learn how to systematize things, and I fought her on that for a couple of years until finally one day something happened. Every single Tuesday, I meet with my team in what we call a top line meeting, and at top line, we go through every single client project. Now we talk about what's going on with Mrs. Smith, what happened at Mr. Jones, where are we at with the waterfront project? Whenever we get to the end of a project and we're almost done, we like to produce what we call the client binder. And it's a binder that holds floor plans and warranties and paint colors and all that kind of information for the client so that they can have at their fingertips access to everything they need in the event they have a flood or they need to redo something for some reason. So in Topline, it would typically go like this. Hey, we're all done with the Vander Jones project, so who's going to do the client binder? And somebody would put up their hand and say, oh, I'll do it. And then they would go away uh, during the week, and they would put together a binder. Then they would bring it back to Topline, and I would take time to look at the binder, and I'd say, oh, this this looks pretty good, but you know what? Remember the last time we did a binder, uh, it had our logo on the front? I think that looked really good. And then somebody else would say, it also had those tabs. Remember, that was really convenient. Oh, yeah, I like those tabs. Let's put those in the binder. And so she would go away again for another week, and she'd come back with the binder at the next top line meeting. And we'd all talk about the binder. We'd say, oh, yeah, where are the warranties? Remember, the warranties are supposed to go in there. Right, oh yeah, I forgot. And so another week would go by, we'd all look at the top line binder again. This would go on and on and on. And then we finally would get it right, it would go off to the client, everybody's happy. Well, a few weeks would go by, and we'd say, hey, we're just about to finish the Smith project. Who wants to do the binder? And somebody would say, oh, I'll do the binder. And then they'd say, remind me. What goes in the binder again? And so the whole team would talk about what goes in the binder. Warranties, floor plans, inspiration, photos. Don't forget to put the paint chips and the fabric swatches in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. So that person would go away, produce a binder, and bring it back to Topline. And then we'd all discuss the binder. Invariably, something about this binder we liked, something we didn't like what about this? What about that? Remember the last binder? It had this particular type of tab system that was really smart. How did that go? We'd spend a half an hour, 45 minutes discussing this binder. That person would go away, bring it back. We'd do it again. That person would go away, bring it back. We'd do it again. We'd get the binder right, and then it would go off to the client. Well, this one. On and on and on. And I'm embarrassed to tell you now that this went on for years. And finally, one day, uh, we get to the end of a project. It was the Hazleton Lanes project. I'll never forget it. And we said, okay, it's time to do the client binder. Who's going to do the client binder? Somebody said, hey, I'll do the client binder. Awesome. And then she said, what's in the binder again? And I realized, oh my gosh, this is exactly what my business coach is talking about. If we had a system for producing the binder, we would never, ever, ever have to talk about the binder again at a top line meeting. So I realized right then, epiphany moment, I was going to have to create a system for producing a client binder. And that's what we did. We literally wrote a document called the Idiot's Guide to Producing a Client Binder. It took us about four weeks to come up with a template that we all agreed was perfect. And then we produced a document which explained to anybody. You did not have to be a professional interior designer to understand this document. It explained to anybody who picked it up how to produce that binder. So what happened then was really extraordinary, at least to my way of thinking. We were able to give the Idiot's Guide to Producing a Client Binder to an intern or a junior designer and say to them, listen, we just finished this big project. The client's name is McTaggart. All you have to do is follow the instructions to produce a client binder for Mrs. McTaggart. And lo and behold, that person would walk away with that instruction manual and come back to us with a perfect client binder. Think about that for a minute. We used to spend 15, 20 minutes discussing the client binder at just about every top line meeting. And I always had to see the client binder before it went out. Once we got a system in place, I no longer even look at the client binders. I don't need to. I know what's in them every single time. I know that they're produced perfectly. I know what the client gets them, that they won't have any extra questions about what's inside of them because they're labeled well. It's very clear. So suddenly that freed up hours of time as a business owner. And by the way, not just my time, but my staff's time as well, because when we're sitting in that top line meeting, there could be two or four or five of us all together at that meeting. We're all spending time talking about the binder. Suddenly, we never talk about the binder anymore. And I realized like, oh my gosh, if that could work for the binder, then perhaps I could create systems for other things in my office. And that really was the first one. I saw the efficiency of it. I saw the impact it had on my life and my business. And I approached my business in a totally new way after that. I started thinking about what else could I create a system for? Could I create a system for the person who answers the phone? Yeah. Could I create a system for signing a new customer up to be a design client? Yes. Could I create a system for uh, receiving a contract, getting a retainer, acknowledging those things to the client, and getting the project launched? Yes, 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 yes. What I found is if I broke my business down into small enough pieces, I actually was able to create systems to run every single part of it. That's a heck of a long way from where I came, which was, I don't want any systems. I don't think I need systems. I'm not a bank. I'm not a Starbucks. I'm just a little decorating shop. I became so crazy with systems and processes, in fact, that my staff uh, one day, as a joke, decided to create a system for ordering coffee for everyone in the office. So uh, typically what would happen, an intern usually would say to us, does anybody want a coffee? I'm going to go for a run. And I would say, oh, yeah, I would love it. I would love an extra hot double shot cappuccino uh, with 1% milk, you can't use skim milk. I don't like that. And 2% is too much. So what they have to do is they have to mix the skim milk with the 2% milk. And then it's a 1% milk. Okay, do you have that? Did you write that down? Okay. And then I want a little chocolate on top. And don't forget, I like it extra hot. And the person who was taking the coffee orders would go to each person in the office and have that same lengthy conversation. So one day, somebody decided to make a system for getting coffees and typed it all up. And what happened? Next was extraordinary, not just for me, but for everybody in the office. We all saw it. The intern said to us, hey, I'm going to go for coffee. And someone said, oh, wait a minute, here's a piece of paper. Now what you have to do is you have to see who wants their regular order. So she said, who wants coffee? I put my hand up. Kathy puts her hand up. Victoria puts her hand up. Brett puts his hand up. And all she has to do is go to the store now with very detailed instructions written for getting our coffee. We all thought it was hysterical. On the other hand, we realized how much time it actually saved. I know your business is unique. I know you're unique. I know every client you deal with is unique. But the process for running a project, not unique. It really needs to be the same every time. When it's the same every single time, clients can relax and enjoy the experience of working with us. I know some of you are thinking, because you're familiar with my processes and the 15-step project management strategy that I teach all the time, you're thinking, oh, it's easy for you. You have those 15 steps. But don't forget, I didn't have those 15 steps when I started down this path. I had no steps. Uh, Today, yeah, I have 15 steps, and I have systems within the systems within the systems, and those are all available for you at Business of Design. If you're at the place uh, where I was about 15 years ago, where I was so overwhelmed and things were so out of control, I didn't know where to start, the best advice I can give you is start with whatever is most painful. For me, what was most painful was everything around money getting paid, billing the clients, invoicing the clients, all that stuff was a quagmire, it was a nightmare, and it's what I needed to tackle first. So that's the area I went after first. Today it's so different, of course. I've got all these systems, and there are, by the way, more than 100 courses on business of design. We may be up to 150 courses by now. All of those represent systems that you can use immediately in your business. If you're new, I strongly recommend you start at the beginning. Start by taking the courses that are the steps. Step one, step two, step three. Do them in the proper order. Take time as you listen to those courses to implement the ideas in those steps before you go on to the next one. It really, really will change your life, I promise. And speaking of step one, that brings me to the second item in my best business practice, and that has to do with pre-qualifying or screening potential clients. If you're like me, when I started out, I just wanted any client. And the fact of the matter is, when we do that, when we chase the buck as they say, when we accept any client that comes to us, what happens is we find ourselves pigeonholed pretty quickly. You accept that client who really doesn't have a budget that's realistic, or you accept the client who wants to do a little work with you, but do DIY part of it herself. What happens is you then become sort of well-known in that niche or that niche, and then those clients will recommend you to other clients just like them. And that's really not where you want to be. So one of the most valuable systems we created relatively early on was a system for screening clients, for getting that potential, potential customer who phones in to set up a design consultation, signed up, getting them to yes quickly, all of that stuff. So that's another system that I recommend very strongly. Listening to our podcasts, we have a great one with Isoon Cook, who is the woman who answers my phone and has done so for the past 12 to 15 years. Isoon very well remembers what we used to be like and what happened and what we're like now and all of the systems that we've implemented iSoon has a very specific strategy for taking information from the potential client, giving them information back that's going to be vital to them, and then getting them to say yes for the consultation. That's her job. She's really good at it. So you're going to love that podcast where she shares some specifics about how she transforms that potential customer into a paying client. One of the things I like most, in fact, is the fact that she has a script. So when the client calls, and of course, by now she has it memorized, but she has a very specific script. When they call, she knows exactly from A to B to C to D, how that conversation needs to flow and what needs to happen. So I promise you're going to love that one. Number two on my list Get yourself a thorough screening process and pre qualify those clients. In fact, you can help yourself with this right away by posting your rates on your website. I know that terrifies some of you. Oh my gosh, what if I scare people away if they see my rates? Well, good. You want to scare people away who don't want to pay your rate. Otherwise, you're answering the phone morning, noon, and night to customers who really aren't right for you. So raise your rates. Get those rates up on your website. This shouldn't be a secret. It shouldn't be a mystery. You want to eliminate people who really aren't the client you're looking for. And that leads very nicely into number three, which is price yourself like a pro. Everybody knows the difference between a Toyota and a Mercedes. It's very clear. They're two different price points. They're two different vehicles. Yes, they will both drive you to work, but the experience is going to be different. Your rate is your brand. Your rate projects to Everybody who finds it, exactly the value you place on your services. If your rate is $50 an hour, you're letting the world know that you think that's what your services are worth. If your rate is $400 an hour, you're letting the world know that that's what you think your services are worth. When you price yourself as the lowest possible rate, you're attracting clients who want to spend the least amount of money. When you price yourself at a really high rate, you're attracting clients who want to spend a decent amount of money. Think about it in your own life. Let's say you needed a lawyer. Would you really want the cheapest possible lawyer to get you out of a fix? I don't think I would. Uh, What about this one? Plastic surgery. Let's say you've decided to give yourself a brand new nose. Do you really want the cheapest possible plastic surgeon to do that for you? No way. You want that guy who's super, super expensive and uh, it might be a bit of a stretch for you, but this nose is the only one you have. It's really important. So you're going to make that work. Price yourself like you mean business. And that lets everybody know that you're a professional. This isn't a hobby. You're not dabbling. This is what you do for a living. And you're providing real expertise. I have been to so many conferences where the speakers talk about getting luxury clients and rarely do they talk about this. They talk about all kinds of superficial things, which I don't think get you luxury clients. The bottom line is luxury clients want to buy luxurious things. And if you're the least expensive designer in your city, that doesn't seem like a luxury purchase. By pricing yourself at a low rate, you actually scare luxury clients away That is the truth. We can all help the industry, by sharing openly what we charge. So if you belong to an association, definitely a Business of Design, we talk about it all the time, but if you belong to another organization, uh, by all means, encourage your group to talk openly about what everyone's charging. It's good information, and if you can all raise your rates as a group, then your city, your town, your area will understand that that's what it costs to hire professional help. The next one on my list has to do with setting professional boundaries and I had an experience with that yesterday. I got a text from a client. I don't normally get texts from her. I normally keep everything on email. She sent me a text. Now, I know... I don't do texts with clients. I tell new clients right at the beginning that I use texts for my family. My kids are running late, we're meeting for dinner, where are you parking, all that kind of stuff. Texts are for friends and family. Work is email. That way I can keep track of every conversation. I have it all in one place. It makes a lot of sense. But I got a surprise text from this client. Wasn't expecting it. She was at a store. She found something lovely and she sent me a photo of it. And I wasn't even thinking. I just responded like, oh, I love that. What are you you thinking of doing? Uh, Because it wasn't for an area of her house that we're doing. So then she sent me a text back. I responded, before you knew it, I had an hour conversation with her by text that had nothing to do with the project I was working on. And I realized that I'm the one with my response to the very first text who set that ball in motion. So when I got another text from her the next day, I had to say, listen, I'm so sorry about this. I got caught up in the moment and the great picture you sent me was really fun, but I need us to move our conversation to email. If you recall, I use text just for family and friends and that kind of stuff. and don't want to mix it with work. And she, oh, I totally forgot. I'm so sorry. Absolutely. And that sort of ended it. If I don't have professional boundaries like that, then I can find myself working 24-7. The same is true for Facebook messages. If you private message me on Facebook and you ask me a decorating question, I'm not going to answer it. If you private message me on Facebook and you ask me a business of design related question, I'm going to ask you to post it at business of design. Um, I need to set those boundaries or like I said, I'd be working 24-7. Nobody despises me for having those boundaries. They all get it. Oh, right. Of course, that makes total sense. Now, the same is true with emails. Uh, I don't respond to emails on Sunday evening at 10 p.m. All of my emails get responded to Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 p.m. Now, if I choose to work on a Saturday, because that I do that sometimes, I might take Tuesday and Wednesday off and decide I'm going to work Saturday instead. I will prep emails, but I won't hit send until Monday morning. If I do send emails over the weekend, I may be giving the client the impression I don't have professional hours. I don't keep professional hours. And I know some of you are saying, but hey, I've got little kids and I work from home. They understand. They might understand because clients are often lovely people, but you still want to give the impression that you're running a business. That's very important because the minute you take someone's money, they have to trust that you're running a professional business that's really buttoned down. And of course, we can't talk about setting boundaries if we don't talk about the word no. No. One of our biggest challenges, I think, as a community is uh, the fact that we're people pleasers. Right now, if I said to you, you put your hand up if you're a people pleaser, uh, the vast, vast majority of people listening would put their hands up. I don't know why that's true, but that seems to be true whenever I speak to a big audience that if I say, who's a people pleaser, majority of the hands go flying up into the air. While that makes us lovely people in many ways, it does make it problematic for us to set boundaries and Certainly to say no, even when no is warranted. Let me give you an example of how I should have said no but didn't and what transpired. So I remember maybe 10 years ago dealing with the lovely, lovely clients. It was September. We were talking about a kind of a big decorating job that we were doing. And the client said to me, I want everything ready uh, for Christmas. And here we were late September, nothing had been ordered. And what came out of my na- out of my mouth next was, well, we'll really try to do that. And what should have come out of my mouth was, Absolutely no. There's absolutely no way we can have this project completed by December 25th. And here's why. So instead, what I said was, well, we're really going to try to make that happen. And then, of course, you know the story. I disappointed the client. We weren't able to get it done. It wasn't all my fault because of course the client didn't make the decisions and et cetera, et cetera. But all of that finger pointing didn't buy me any sympathy from the client. All the client remembered was that I promised to have everything done by Christmas and I ruined her Christmas with her family because it wasn't done. I can't count how many times I did something like that to myself over the years until I finally realized, you know what, if I would just say no right at the beginning, very firmly, straight up front, I would end their hope and expectation that that thing could happen. And they might be disappointed initially, but when in fact the project finished in January, they would know that I delivered on my word. And remember, part of my philosophy with business of design is being able to deliver on time and on budget. So it's very important not to set up unrealistic expectations. Learning to say no has been one of the most powerful things I've ever done for myself. Some other places that know comes in really handy. You're dealing with a potential client, and you tell them that, let's say, your hourly rate is $175 an hour. And that potential client says, Oh, wow, I'd really love to work with you, but I spoke with Susie Smith down the street, and she's only $75 an hour. Would you be willing to lower your rate to get this project? And the answer that needs to come out of your mouth right then and there is absolutely not. I know the value and the expertise I bring to the table. I know what's at stake. I know what, how complicated, how complex these jobs are. I assume responsibility and liability for every single person that steps into your home. Uh, our rates are consistent with the value we provide. And if Susie wants to charge $75 an hour, I guess Susie knows what Susie's worth. And then be quiet, right? Don't say another word. No, no, no. Another place that was extremely difficult for me to learn to say no at was around design fees. So let's say the end of the month came, I sent Mr. Smith his design fees and they came to $6,000. And you know how this goes. Mr. Smith goes, Oh my God, $6,000. How did we possibly spend $6,000? And then I began my lame justification of the time spent. Well, you know, Mr. Smith, I had to do this and we did that. And then you change your mind. And then the contractor said this. And so I had to go there. And of course, Mr. Smith is like, yeah, 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 yeah. All of that aside, I don't care. Six thousand is too much. I need you to lower the fee. And right then and there, what needs to come out of my mouth, at least, is no. We don't do that. Uh, I found that so challenging. In fact, one of the things that helped me get to that place where I could say no was providing clients with log sheets. When I started out, initially, we would provide those log sheets only if the client asked for them. Today, instead, we send log sheets each and every month. Now, when a client says, $6,000, are you kidding me? How did you get there? We have a standardized, systematized response. Have a look at the log sheets. If you see any task that is inefficient or ineffective or unnecessary, we will remove the hours associated with that task. Otherwise, fees are due immediately. End of story. We don't negotiate our fees anymore. What I didn't realize then is every single time I gave in and I said, you know what? Okay, fine. You know what? I'll take $1,000 off, Mr. Smith, because you're so unhappy and I want you to be happy and money's not that important to me, blah, blah, blah. I'll take $1,000 off. What that did is it created a scenario where every single month Mr. Smith was going to complain about fees because he knew I would take some money off. And every single month I would get angrier and angrier. And to compound the problem in advance of sending design fees, some months I would just take some time off, hoping that Mr. Smith would accept the hours as they were. But guess what? Even when I reduced the hours before I sent them to Mr. Smith, he still complained. So really, I. had to take ownership of this problem and recognize that by negotiating with the clients, I was setting this ball in motion. So the answer is no, we do not negotiate our fees. We stand by the work we perform. It's complicated. Uh, There's liability and responsibility involved with it. And we have big overhead, just like everyone else. I have association fees. I have insurance fees. We have workman's compensation fees that we pay. We have to pay for computers. We put gas in our car. There's all kinds of expenses that come with running a business. Clients know that. They understand it, and they appreciate it. Learn to say no when it comes to negotiating fees. Here's something you can say yes to. You can say yes to analyzing and evaluating every aspect of your business. That's number six when I'm so busy working, 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 and just churning out the work and not taking time to slow down and examine whether or not things are going well or going bad, I'm doing myself a great disservice. Um, so here's a couple of simple examples. Let's say you did some advertising. You did some advertising on a blog and uh, you spent a thousand dollars and that seems a small or large depending on where you're sitting right now. I understand that, but you spent a thousand dollars on some advertising for this blog and they call back and they they say, Hey, uh, Joanne, we love that you sponsored the blog. We had 500,000 visitors to our blog. Uh, we're sure you got great traffic from it because we heard from someone that she called you and we're wanting to know if you want to advertise with us again next month. And you have been so busy, flat out working, working, working. You have no idea if anybody called, uh, from that blog or not. So you think for a second You think, well, she said they had 500,000 visitors. That sounds like a heck of a lot of visitors to me. And that person, she says, phoned, well, I don't know. Maybe they phoned. That kind of sounds familiar. I'm not sure. You know what? Okay, let's do one more month. Uh, The fact of the matter is you have no idea if anybody phoned you from that blog or if that ad was effective in any way at all unless you are doing some analytics. And so for us, part of that would be when we're answering the phone, we're finding out, how did you hear about us? And specifically, if we're spending money on advertising, did you happen to see our ad at such and such a blog? And if nobody says, yes, I did. As a matter of fact, that's right. I forgot. That's where I saw you. Then we know for sure that advertising was not effective for us. So when that person calls, we can say, you know what, we really tracked it uh, and we were not able to see the results. So I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to go forward. Um, I did the first scenario so often, I can't tell you. I'll give you another example. We did for many years um, a, home, a home show, one of these uh, home house tour things uh, in Toronto, it was a junior league. So they would get this big house and they would get a different designer to do every room in the house and we would spend thousands of dollars because of course you're competing with other designers even though you're not. You are, you know you are and you want your room to be awesome. So we'd spend all this money. It would be an incredible strain on our staff. And we would call in every favor from all of our trades. So we spent a lot of capital, social capital, on this event for sure. And then it would be over and we'd go, oh, my God, that was so funny fun. Did you see what so-and-so did in the kitchen? It was incredible. Did you see what so-and-so did in the master bedroom? Wasn't that horrific? Ha ha ha. Isn't it grand? And then four years would roll around and the junior lead would call us back and say, do you want to do it again? And we go, oh my gosh, really? It's four years already. Uh, okay. Well, I guess we must have gotten business from it, right? I mean, cause it costs us a fortune. And by the way, You don't even know that it costs you a fortune if you're not doing the analytics you need to do. Uh, Did you ever take time to cost out how much it costs you to make an appearance at a home show or to produce a room in one of these show houses? So the fact of the matter is once I got really serious about running my business, I was able to track all those analytics. So we were finally up and running. I had done about three show houses We decided to do another one, but now I'm in a business of design groove, and we're tracking everything, and we find out afterwards that it costs us over $100,000 to participate. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea what it cost me as a business owner to be there, $100,000, Uh, because it was hidden. It was hidden in all the other expenses that went through my company, and we were so busy, et cetera, et cetera. So over $100,000 to do this. And we got no clients from it, not a single client. So four years go by again, and we have this information for last year, and we really had to talk about it. Do we want to spend that kind of money? What if we don't get another client? And one of the things we decided to do was try to force getting new clients out of the show house. We enjoyed doing it. We thought it was fun. We had the money to do it. So we decided we're going to do it one more time. And I'll tell you what we did. Uh, Every one of these show houses seems to have a gala evening, and what we did at our gala evening was we hired uh, this very handsome young guy to walk around in a bathing suit. He was our pool boy. Uh, For that show house, we did a master bedroom, and I think it was beautiful, but in addition to doing gorgeous decorating, we had this whole backstory that the owner of the home, the female owner of the home, was having an affair with the pool boy. So throughout the room, there were clues... To this infidelity and we gave everybody who came in a little card so they could look around the room and they could see her wedding ring was hidden in a drawer. They could see a little photo of him in her diary. There were little clues that she could look for and then at the gala party everybody got to meet the pool boy who was lounging around in her bedroom because the couple was out of town. Well, that year we got three huge projects from that show house. So part of the evaluation was to determine what was working. And then that allowed us to make some changes. So we were able to make it work for us again. Going back to our blog example where you spent $1,000 on an ad for a blog, you could just say, no, we're not going to advertise with you anymore, or you could go back and look at what you said in the advertisement. Was there a strong call to action? Was there an incentive for people who read the blog to come to you? You might decide it's worth spending another $1,000. Make those changes and see if it works the next time around. But of course, none of that can happen if we're not analyzing and evaluating all the work we do uh, under a microscope, really. You know, and and that's really a muscle. It gets stronger as you do it. It's kind of like the systems. Once I created one system that was effective, then I had kind of a motivation to do another system. And when I saw that that worked, I really became, you know, fired up about creating more and more systems. The same is true for us with analytics. Uh, I think once you'll start doing that a little bit more, you find you get a lot more strong, a lot more competent, and you begin to think as a mature business owner... Uh, regardless of your age, by the way, you can be a mature business owner uh, at 31 and you can be an immature business owner at 61. Uh, it really isn't an age thing so much as uh, taking ownership of your business and committing to having it thrive and support you. The seventh item on my list has to do with working to firm deadlines. So this is one that I didn't like when I first started out. I didn't really want to have to commit to hard deadlines. But what I have found uh, over the years is the more I can, the more efficient my business comes, and the more profitable my business becomes. So each of the steps has a firm timeline around it. For example, step three is typically a three-week process. I know that from the time I get the contract in the retainer, it's going to take me about a week to schedule all the trades. Uh, uh, Then we're going to have trade day. It might be a week or two weeks later. Uh, Then trade day is going to happen and I'm going to have a few follow-ups afterwards. So within three to four weeks, trade day is done and done. I know also that step four is going to be a six to eight-week process every single time. If with a very small job, we say six weeks. If it's a big job, we say eight weeks. Every single time, eight weeks. Step five happens really quickly. And then step six to nine, that depends on how big the project is. But we're always sort of focused on when that has to be done by. If you work for yourself, uh, it can be a little bit more challenging to commit to those firm deadlines. I know for me at least, what used to happen is, you know, I'm going to go sourcing for uh, Mrs. Jones fabric on Tuesday. And I would go uh, to the fabric house to do some sourcing. I'd have a coffee, I'd do a little sourcing, and then I'd get distracted because I ran into another designer. And then it's lunchtime. And then I go back and I do a little more sourcing. And before you know it, Tuesday was over, and I'd gotten some of the fabrics I needed for the project, but not all all of the fabrics. And so I'd have to go back another day. Well, in contrast today, I know that that's not fair to the clients that I haven't been focused on a timeline uh, because I'm not giving them my best work and my most efficient work. And I know also that I'm going to create a bottleneck in my business if I don't get tasks done. So now instead what I do when I'm going to source fabrics for a client, I always begin in the morning. I don't start in the afternoon. That's not when I'm freshest. I'm fresh Just in the morning. I always start at 10 a.m. and I do not leave the fabric showrooms without all the fabrics I need. That's my commitment. And some days, boy, it's hard. I just want to go have a cappuccino. I just want to take a break. I'm not in the mood. And I really have to talk to myself. Kimberly, this is the only day to do it. You must get these fabrics selected today. And what happens then is I get a whole lot of help from people in the showrooms. They see that I'm committed to completing something. They stop, ask me where I'm stuck. I'll say, listen, I got to find a faux leather. I need a vinyl for some bar stools, and I have no idea what fabric can go with this, this, and this for the family room sofa. So I'm kind of done. I'm sort of zapped, and uh, could you help me? And they will. They'll stop everything. They'll run around the showroom. They'll bring me 82 choices, and I say, yeah, that works, and that works. Boom, I'm out of here. So develop some discipline and learn to work to very firm deadlines. That's helped me a lot, in fact. Number eight has to do with asking for referrals. I really, really, really didn't like this. I felt shy and embarrassed about it, and I felt like if I was so busy and so good, why wouldn't I have a very long list of people waiting to work with me? Why would I have to ask for work? And I had to work hard to get over this, and today I can't say this is my number one strength, but when I have a good experience with a client, I typically will say something like, you know, Rita, you are so fun to work with. Seriously, don't you have another girlfriend who needs her kitchen done or her powder room or her patio? Come on, give me a name. I need somebody. And it I'm shocked how often they'll say, you know what, my best friend is going to do a renovation and she's, you know, in cottage country. Do you think you'd be willing to talk to her? Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. I just have to ask Uh, and for some reason, the asking part is really hard for me. Now we've tried to put form letters in the client binder asking for referrals that has not been as effective for us as when I just straight up ask them for another customer. So, um, that's another indication that you are really working a professional business and you are committed to staying busy and you're constantly thinking about filling that client pipeline. Number nine is dear to my heart. And that has to do with having impeccable integrity. One of the things our business is kind of known for, and this is not a good thing, is being a little hinky when it comes to fees. Clients can't, quite figure out where the markups are, they don't know who's making what, Uh, they're afraid that everybody's getting a kickback, and that means that they're paying the most ridiculous high price possible, everybody's worried about clients price checking them, and I realized a long time ago, like, I can't sleep at night if I don't know for sure I'm running a business that is 100% clean in the event the client asks to see something. So I'll give you a couple of examples because this has come up a lot recently on some Facebook pages, which I love being a part of. And invariably, somebody will say, oh, my God, can you believe it? The client wants to see an original invoice for the shipping costs oh my God, what am I going to do? That's ridiculous. It's none of their business. And then people will pipe in and say, that's ridiculous. When you go to Walmart, you don't ask to see the original price of the cost of the item. Uh, tell them no. What a jerk. What a, you know, all kinds of nonsense like this. And I think, you know what? The fact is clients do ask to see that stuff. They've asked me to see that stuff. They've asked you to see that stuff. Why don't I make it so it's okay, If they ask to see that stuff, because the fact of the matter is there's absolutely nothing you can say at that point other than okay, that will not make you sound like you're hiding something. By all means, you can use the example and you can say, you know, if Walmart sells a toy, they don't show you the original price of the toy, but I guarantee you, if you say that to the client, the client's going to imagine that you have 10,000% markup on that item. And that really isn't the case. In fact, often our markups are embarrassingly low. So in our office, the way that we handle something like a shipping bill is we give them that bill immediately, the minute they ask for it, without hesitation. So um, the way that we work uh, shipping duties, Uh, freight, taxes, that kind of stuff. We don't put any markup on those items. So if a client asks us to see a moving bill, uh, we can send them the exact bill from from the supplier. If a client asks us to see the shipping charges on the fabric, boy, we'll send them that bill so fast. And if a client asks to see another bill, let's say we bought a piece of furniture from a retail store, we're happy to send them the original invoice because our contract is very clear how we make money on selling that product. That allows me to, as I said, sleep at night. I don't have to worry if a client starts threatening they want to see original invoices. We tell them, come to our office any day, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and you can go through all the receipts you want. Any any day. You don't even have to call ahead of time. There's your drawer. By all means, dig through and see all the original invoices. I have found over the years that when I get those receipts to the client immediately, they say, "Okay, thank you. Wow, I didn't think it was going to be that expensive." And I can say, "I know it's crazy, isn't it? We totally agree. The world's is expensive. What can we say?" And then they never ask to see another receipt. In contrast, if you were to say, well, I don't have to show you that information, your relationship really is going to hit the rocks pretty fast. So impeccable integrity is the only way to go. For those of you worried about clients shopping you, I hear that a lot. Well, I showed them this fabric from Kravit and then they went online and they found it for half the price. I'll tell you what we say to the clients about that. That's fine. If you want to order the fabric, if you want to accept 100% responsibility for the timing of the fabric, for the fabric's um, physical state, uh, then that's fine. You go ahead and order that fabric. We won't have anything to do with it. And I tell them often when you see... At a discounted price, it means there's something wrong with it. The color is wrong, Uh, there's a slip throughout the fabric that's going to show up as a flaw um and in the event they decide to order something from somebody who uh let's say it's somebody like direct buy a lot of people talk about that oh my client wants to go to direct buy by all means you can order anything you want from direct buy i won't have anything to do with them and here's what i've learned from lots of different people if you order a refrigerator from best buy or uh direct buy rather and something goes wrong good luck getting it fixed you will own a refrigerator that doesn't work and nobody will want to touch it because there's nobody to stand behind it. So yeah, you might pay a little bit more money by going through me, by using reputable uh, suppliers and manufacturers, but you're also going to have a company to go back to in the event that something is wrong. And by the way, things go wrong every single day on every single job. There's multiple deficiencies. So you really are playing Russian roulette if you decide that you're going to go to one of these jobs. On your own. Don't worry about clients shopping you. Let them shop you till their heart's content. And again, if you're able to show them the original invoice, they know that you're paying a fair price for that item. And I have never once had the experience where the client didn't say, okay, you know what, this is complicated. You just do it. You're right. You will just take care of it. Number 10 uh, is just kind of a fun last thought, and that is get a hobby. Get a hobby so you know this isn't one. Being a practicing interior design professional in any capacity is not a hobby. It's a dangerous hobby. You really want to be fully committed, protect yourself in every way because the fact of the matter is you have tremendous liability and responsibility. Even if you do not accept money from trades, if you are on a job site and trades are there, you could be named and a lawsuit in the event something goes wrong. It's not fair, but it's the truth. So understand that this is not a job for people who want to dabble around in some fun little decorating. It's really not. This is a job for serious professionals and we provide serious value to people who don't have time to do the work, who don't have the expertise to do the work. And I'm not just talking about don't have the expertise to create a certain style because quite frankly, that's the easy part of our job. They don't have the expertise to manage the workflow on a project, to manage trades, to understand how all of those moving parts come together. So over and over and over again I meet customers who tell me yeah it's really expensive but I didn't want to do it and I'm so glad you do want to do it. So number 10 is get a hobby Uh, and on a very serious note we do want to create some balance in our lives and I was unable to do any of that until I created systems and procedures to run my business because until I had those in place I was working evenings, weekends, vacation time. It was all madness. Once I started getting systems in place, I found myself being able to take Saturdays and then Sundays off, Saturdays and Sundays. Imagine two days in a row, unplugged, not looking at the office, not worrying about it. I became... Almost like an employee of my own company because employees can show up to work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5 30, no problem. And then they go home on Saturday and Sunday, they don't give another thought to the office. Not so with the owner, right? You know, we're on call 24-7. And I realized once I got all of these systems in place, I had the freedom of an employee, but the profit of an owner. I mean, that's that's a fabulous place to be, right? So we do want to take care of ourselves. Uh, We do want a business that fuels our life, not a life to fuel our business. That's what I used to have. I thought the purpose of my life was to work, 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 work and build a business. No, the purpose of my business is to fund the lifestyle I want and to create the lifestyle I've dreamed of. And it can do that if we charge enough If we have systems and structures in place to protect us, then we can build a thriving professional business and have a life. I think we all deserve that. You guys, thank you so much for being here. All of the 10 best practices have courses relating to them at businessofdesign.com. We'd love to have you as a member. It's ridiculously affordable, $67.50 a month. Uh, Sometimes people say, I'm just starting out. I don't have any money. Trust me. Take one course Apply what you learn and you will make that money back over and over and over again. You can't afford not to be here. And I'm really glad you're here because uh, this is tough job no matter how you slice it. Uh, without you guys, I don't know what I do. So I appreciate you spending the hour with me. I look forward to seeing you next time.
1: Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community. If you love what we do, please show your support by subscribing. up for a monthly or annual membership. Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today.